thoughts and, and words and our actions. May we um, be uh, living for your purpose, not our own. In, in Jesus' name, amen. So the chapter I wanted you to read, and we're only going to have one more class after this, the chapter I wanted you to read is the chapter on postmillennialism. It's called The Promise of Postmillennialism, chapter 4 of Sandlin's book. Uh, we'll, we'll probably combine the rest of the chapters into uh, one last quick lesson. They aren't as significant in positions. You basically heard and are about to hear the three main positions, which is amillennialism, premillennialism, and postmillennialism. Uh, Sandlin is a postmillennialist, and I would say that uh, I would call myself the same thing. At least about 80% of me would, and then the other uh, 20% would modify, depending on what you mean by postmillennialism. So we'll get into that maybe. So I'm going to read through this, and I think it's very, uh, very uh, good. The postmillennial view thinks that the Old Testament promises a time of glorious peace, abundant prosperity, and global righteousness. In other words, things get better in history. They don't wait for Jesus to come back to get better. They get better as he reigns from the right hand of the Father. Furthermore, this view contends that the fulfillment of these promises occurs upon the earth while Jesus is ruling from heaven. Number one, postmillennialists disagree with premillennialists that the second coming of Christ must occur before these good things occur upon the earth. Postmillennialists believe these things occur during the inter-advent period and then Christ returns. When I say inter-advent period, I mean the first advent is he's born to his mother or, or he's conceived, I should say, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, is born, lives a life, dies is uh, resurrected and ascends. That was the first advent. The second advent, he comes again, second coming. So in between these two advents is um, when postmillennialists believe things get better and better and better. Number two, postmillennialists disagree with amillennialists that the scope of these Good things must be limited to the church or deceased saints and to the eternal state. That was something we covered last time. Postmillennialists believe that the wonderful promises of the Old Testament engulfs both heaven and the earth. Amillennialists, okay, they kind of say it never happens on earth. It never gets better and better and better on earth. Not pre-mill, not post-mill. Um, that those wonderful uh, thoughts of the Old Testament have to do with heaven and after after Jesus is put, put an end to the earthly experience. Sandlin turns to various passages that promise an incremental and expansive advancement of God's and Christ's kingdom in human history. And it's pretty much the rest of the chapter that he does this. I'm going to read, uh, read some passages, and then we'll, we'll see what he says about these passages. Genesis 17, 1 through 8. And remember, all these different positions read this same Bible, these same texts, and they've got to make sense of them, right? It says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." 
No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There's a significant covenantal uh, interaction between God and Abram there. Then in Genesis 22, 15 through 18, we see more of it. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, quote, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. This was when he was supposed to uh, sacrifice Isaac. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, premillennial position would pretty much take those conversations uh, between God and Abraham as strictly applying to Abraham and his immediate physical uh, ethnic descendants and the land of Israel in, it, in, in, in its parameters. And, um, and then any blessing of nations would go just like the interactions with these different people. Postmillennialists says, no, these conversation, conversations with Abraham meant much more than maybe people would ever have given credit to as they heard about them in the past. And so when the Jews became feeling very important as a people, um, they should have realized from the outset they were only one of many peoples that are very important to God and that Abraham would be blessing all of those as well. Let me read what Sandlin says. This is actually word for word with some dots in between. And, And a pledge to Abraham is that his seed would possess the gates of their enemies. And that was said in that first section. Oh, no, I'm sorry, in the second section, 22, uh, verse 17. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. Okay, Sandler says, a pledge to Abraham is that his seed would possess the gates of their enemies, possibly prefiguring Matthew 16, 18, which asserts that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. The language is symbolic. The gates of the city are identified with its power, the seat of its authority. Proverbs 31, 23 and Jeremiah 14, 2 and 3. This requires the subordination of Christ's enemies. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25. It is exactly what Genesis 22 predicted. The seat of Abraham will possess the gates of her enemies. This can hardly require less than the worldwide dominion of Christ and his elect, the reestablishment of Christian civilization and Christian culture. I want to just look at that one 1 Corinthians 15 passage. If you want to look at that, feel free to grab a Bible out. I think this is one passage to me that is as 
convincing as any other of Christ's rule now, continuing on until he returns at the end of time. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25 says, then comes the end. It's speaking of Christ ruling up until this point. Let's start in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, speaking of Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, speaking of Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Okay, So he was raised first, and at his coming those who belong to him will be raised, changed. Now verse 24 and 25 says this, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And, and so on. You can keep reading that. Um, but the idea is that when Jesus returns, it is then, and this would be the argument, it is then that his people uh, are raised that the resurrection of the dead is putting death under his feet. He has ruled until death gets put under his feet, but that happens at the resurrection of the body and then the final judgment, etc. A premillennialist would say, well, this is where the resurrection occurs only for believers. Then Jesus will reign a thousand years on the earth and things will get better and then the rest of the dead will be raised. The unbelievers will be raised. So there's like two resurrections in their idea, whereas Sandlin is saying here, no, there's only one resurrection, and that's why 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25 is, uh, is telling us how Jesus reigns until the, the very end from where he is right now. Romans 4.13 says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring... Oh, this is actually scripture text, Paul's writing. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. I think the key point here is that Abraham's offspring would be heir of the world. Okay, so Jesus is heir of the world. He inherits the world. Sandlin comments, when Paul refers in Romans 4.13 to the land promises and blessing promises of the Abrahamic covenant, he extends them to include not just Canaan, but the entire earth. Abraham and his seed are, are to be heir of the world. And Sandlin also says the multinational, worldwide, new covenant Israel, the Christian church, has replaced ethnic old covenant Israel Similarly, the Worldwide Dominion Commission has replaced the Palestinian Dominion Commission. Um, I guess the idea, I think I preached a couple sermons way back when, one being that Jesus, you know, we, are, we need to understand that he's reigning as king from an ever 
over an everlasting kingdom. And in and, and another sermon I talked about how um, he's reigning beyond the borders of some kind of ethnic, physical country of Israel to the ends of the earth, okay? And so we, we will see some other passages where it talks about the knowledge of God is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea and, and some of these different things. And that was more of a, um, a reign of Jesus that was above and beyond whatever people were trying to do to limit his reign with their different biblical views. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So here we get the idea. Paul's writing to, Galatian, to the Galatians, which is a, a, a Gentile church, a Gentile location. Um, and he's saying that um, because they're Christian, they're Abraham's offspring. So it wasn't just a physical ethnic thing, um, but by promise they become children. Uh, Father Abraham has many sons, many sons have Father Abraham, I am one of them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Red, yellow, black, and white, all are precious in his sight. All of these types of songs um, are just to reemphasize what the Bible tells us to be true. Sandlin says, the nations are blessed in Christ, who bursts asunder the Old Testament limitation of the covenant to ethnic Jews and now calls his people from every nation under heaven that... Uh, goes back to the idea that when Christ was crucified, what, the temple curtain rent in two, the dividing wall was separated between Jew and Gentile, and the gospel went out to the nations. Go ye therefore. So if I read to you real quickly Ephesians 2, Eleven through twenty-two, it says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off and been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that Ephesians passage, I think, makes it pretty clear that there's a new thing that has taken place. 
The old temple, as we know, has been torn down. The new temple is the people of God from both Jew and Gentile, um, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone of it, built upon the apostles and the prophets. For people to go back with this idea like the dispensationalist bells and whistles approach to saying a new temple has to be rebuilt, the Jews are what important, is kind of sacrilegious. Okay, It is saying that what Jesus and Paul and the apostles said is against... Um, uh, it is saying what they said is only for a moment in time, not for eternity, not to be considered everlasting, and that it will end, and the, the real program of God with the Jews will begin again. But here we're told Jews and Gentiles are supposed to be part of this temple of God. Uh, not There's no separation anymore. So uh, a dispensational premillennialist is actually introducing again an old but foreign idea back to the Bible, and um, they should repent of that. Sandlin says, bottom of page two, we might say that all the promises are only partially realized now and will be realized in their fullness only in eternity, but we cannot say that any of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are not presently given to the seed of Abraham, those united to Christ by faith. In other words, if someone says, yeah, but things aren't going to be perfect until Jesus returns, fine. There's an element of truth to that. But all the promises are being fulfilled. We're not waiting for him to return in order for the promises to begin to be fulfilled. This uh, was a dream of Daniel 26, 36 through 45. Uh, I'll read this kind of quickly. But this, this statue, this dream of Nebuchadnezzar, I think it is with Daniel interpreting, is pretty significant. This was the dream. Now we tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, this is Nebuchadnezzar, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he, was, he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Okay. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third king. Uh, uh, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and sh shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of those kings, uh, days of those kings, okay, so the, 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 the dream was of this statue, right? Uh, with a golden head, there was a, uh, arms of silver, uh, arms and breasts of silver. You had a brass uh, uh, middle, uh, or bronze, I don't know which one. And then the, the legs and, and so on were of a different material. And these all represented kingdoms, starting with Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian kingdom and working its way down to when something different was going to happen, okay? 
So this is the something different. In verse 44 it says, And in the, in the days of those kings, and most everybody would say that this was during the Roman Empire period, that this final thing takes place. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Um, who doesn't remember that vision uh, or dream that Nebuchadnezzar saw? Do you, do you all remember that? So this statue was standing there made of these things, and then some, a hand that you don't see cut out the stone and dashed it against the feet, and it just kind of obliterated. So... Um, Sandlin says, the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream refers to four similar historical kingdoms which ruled successfully, uh, sorry, successively, one after the next, okay? Most historical scholars are agreed that the four kingdoms are the four great ancient world empires. The head of the image made of fine gold is Babylon. The image's silver breast and arms picture the Medes and the Persians. Greece is likened to the brass belly and thighs, and the Roman Empire is typified by the iron and clay legs and feet, a mixture of strength and weakness. A small stone cut out without hands, supernaturally hurled, smashes the image on the feet, the Roman Empire, and, therefore, and thereby destroys the image. The small stone then grows and becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. And that's the significant part uh, from a post-millennial perspective is these things happened in the days of the Roman Empire. The, the stone was, was, was tossed and cast at the feet and since then it has been growing and growing. Sandlin also says the expression in the days of these kings clinches the post-millennial argument. The everlasting kingdom was to establish in the earth begins, oh sorry, the everlasting kingdom was to establish in the earth God, sorry, the everlasting kingdom God was to establish in the earth begins when the stone collides with the image's feet, the Roman Empire, consumes all the ancient empires of which Rome was the final installment and subsequently overwhelms the earth. That is, during the Roman Empire, God launched his final impregnable kingdom in the earth. Any thoughts or comments there? Okay, quickly. Sandlin Christ claimed to be setting up a kingdom at his first advent. Okay, what did Jesus say? So if this was really supposed to be happening, this stone cut without hands, tossed, breaking the statue, Jesus comes along in Matthew 4, because certainly up until this point, before Jesus' advent, they must have been wondering, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? He comes in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Uh, verse 23 
So if you are offering, oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter here. Sorry. Verse 17 of chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then verse uh, chapter 12 of Matthew Verses 27 through 29. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the idea is that here is Jesus saying, the kingdom starts now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am doing, this is what you've been waiting for. This is the kingdom the apostles preached. I won't read those verses. It's the kingdom which finally toppled the pagan Roman Empire in AD 312 with Constantine's conversion. He goes on to say, Note carefully, the everlasting kingdom predicted by God through Daniel is not established at Christ's second advent, but at his first advent. In the days of these kings, it says in the prophecy, not the 21st century. So people who are waiting for this kingdom to be finally established, and here we are in 2024, they were missing the point of Daniel's prophecy. That that stone that was cut out and thrown took place in that final empire, the Roman Empire. Sandlin says the reign of Revelation 20 is the same heaven over earth reign as Daniel 2, the present reign of Christ established at his first advent. So, so many people say that uh, Jesus said when he was talking about the, the future uh, uh, to his, apostles, uh, his disciples that all these bad things were going to happen, right? Um, Jerusalem was going to be surrounded by an army. The, uh, the temple itself would be torn down. Not one stone would be left on another. And so on and so forth. And that happened actually in uh, 70 A.D., about a generation, within a generation of the time Jesus was crucified. All right? And he said in that prophecy, all the things I'm telling you will come upon this generation. This generation, he says, shall not pass away until all these things take place. And yet, people, premillennialists and amillennialists, will say, well, wait, all those bad things are still supposed to happen, Right? And you say, no, they already happened. And then they say, well, what about Jesus' return? That didn't happen. And he said that you, every eye would see him, that you see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. If that didn't happen, then why are you saying these bad things happened? And what the answer to that is that thing did happen already, what Jesus was talking about at least. And what he was talking about was the vision of Daniel 7. And so look at that, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. So if all those bad things are happening and that temple's about to be destroyed, all right, then this also must have happened, Daniel seven thirteen through 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this was a vision Daniel had, and it was the vision actually of the ascension of Jesus, right? Coming in the clouds to whom? The Father, the Ancient of Days. And the Father gave him rule. And, and, and it was from that point on that he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. But he's at the right hand of the Father, at the hand, right hand of the Ancient of Days. And then he was given peoples and nations and languages should serve him. So when Jesus said all these bad things when he's talking and when he was upon the earth, he said all these bad things are going to happen, but um, this generation shall not pass away till all these things do happen. When he said, and you will see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, he wasn't talking about returning to earth. Then you'll know I'm going to save you all. I'm, I'm coming in as a sheriff or the Calvary. He was talking about Daniel's vision. And, and all these bad things happening to them in 70 AD or thereabouts was a sign that the Son of Man had come in the clouds to the Ancient of Days, that he had been given all rule and authority by the Heavenly Father. It was a sign to them that he was in charge from heaven. And that's why these negative things are happening to an unrepentant Israel who had killed him years before and now needed to be put away, okay? And it was all taking place from Jesus' ascension. The church started working. Israel was against the church on, on all kinds of different fronts, taking them out of the synagogues, persecuting them. But as time went on, the bad things started to happen to Israel. And that was, should have been a sign to them that the Son of Man had come in the clouds to the Ancient of Days, just as Daniel foretold. Sandlin's note is, it's hard to imagine anyone's not recognizing the clouds of heaven as a reference to Christ's ascension. I agree. That's the most convincing, compelling thing in my mind when I understood that Daniel 7, 13 and 14 was really what Jesus was quoting when he was talking about all those doom and gloom things in... Uh, uh, what is it, Matthew 24, 23 and 24, all those doom and gloom things, and then he went into, and you will see the sign of man coming in the clouds. I always thought, you know, I was taught, that means he's coming back to earth. Well, if that were truly the case, then we should become premillennialists, dispensational premillennialists. But when it was pointed out to me, and I, I could more clearly see it, that he was just really quoting Daniel 7, that this was a sign that he had come in the clouds, all these bad things happening to the Jews that killed him. Now that, that made more sense. Lastly, let's just do this real quick. Matthew 30, uh, 13, 31 through 33, he put another parable before them. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. That's how great this kingdom is. It starts small and keeps growing, growing, growing. He told them a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, a, is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So two things, mustard seed and yeast, okay? They're both described as, by Jesus as, this is how my kingdom's going to work, all right? Sandlin says these two parables emphasize three crucial truths about the kingdom of God. One, it has a small beginning. 
Two, it grows gradually. And three, it eventually becomes massive. If only the church would cling to this thought today, right? Daniel 7.27 says this, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The point of this is to say that we Christians... Jesus' followers, as he's from the right hand of the Father, we are part of ruling with him. We are part and parcel of of being given this kingdom to to implement upon and in the earth while we live here and and interact with others. Revelation 2, 26 through 27 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions, all dominions shall serve and obey him, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has re- have received authority from the Father. So here's a, a reemphasis from Jesus that as he rules, so my people should rule. Matthew 18, uh, 28, 18 through 20. After Jesus came and said to them, all authority... Okay, now listen, all right? After Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is after he rose from the dead. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we are, rulers with Christ. We're being sent out to make disciples of all nations. Last comment by Sandlin. This great commission is that Christians are to disciple and baptize all nations with the assurance that Christ will accompany them until the end of the age. This is a comprehensive calling. It requires not just individual salvation, but the discipling of the nations. To baptize the nations is to bring them under Christ's authority since baptism is a covenantal sign and seal binding the triune God to the believer and the believer to the triune God. Christ promises that he will accompany his church in this world conquering task until the task is complete at the end of the age. And then the post-millennialist would say he returns. And the resurrection occurs, and the final judgment. And the resurrection occurs all people at the same time. Any thoughts or questions or comments or blurred vision? Yeah, well, as you scratch your head and think through these things and come up with questions, then just let's have them at some point down the road. And what was the last part? Okay, yep.
Um, right. Uh, right. Okay, okay, so uh, what you're saying is, didn't it refer to, uh, then you'll see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, being that he was judging them, he was bringing about that judgment, but he wasn't really, like, visibly there. Okay, yeah, and, and I, I think I've heard um, maybe Ken Gentry explain it that way once, who was a, a theologian, which would be post-millennial, um, but I, I have found it to be more satisfying that he's quoting his position in heaven as why these things are happening. If they're not going to see him either way, it's still him bringing it about, but he's quoting the Daniel passage as, as the key um, that he's ascended in ruling. Yes. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, it probably matters. Um, I don't think it can be both. I, I think the, 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 um, the sense of it would be he's, gonna do, he's doing the same thing. Whether you use the verse like unrelated to Daniel 2 or Daniel, whichever it was, Daniel 2 or 7. If it's unrelated to that actual quoting, if he wasn't quoting that and he was just saying, hey, I'm coming back to do this, but you're not going to see him because we wouldn't believe that anyone visually saw him at, at that point. But I, I think it is. He ascended like 30 years prior to the full destruction of, of Jerusalem. But that was a period of the generation that he was speaking of. But I, I, I find it fully satisfying to go, and then you will see the sign of the Son of Man, you know, in the sense of saying that I am the Son of Man who came to the Father and am ruling. You will see that you were wrong. I am the Messiah, um, when these things happen to you, because he's bringing them about. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't know why they would make a, a disconnect uh, from the Daniel passage, although there are other language, other verses in the Bible where it talks about and God came in the clouds or whatever to judge. I, I get that, and I, I don't think either thing really uh, eliminates what was going on, it's just I, I don't I don't know that I don't know why you would not say that that was referring to the ascension that Daniel passage and that that's what he was quoting in a sense but there is also somewhere in a chapter break Justin where people will say okay well now he starts really talking about the second coming second coming or second advent different from the judgment coming or his judging from the right hand of the Father. But I don't remember exactly where that. Uh, Daniel. Um, uh, where Jesus was talking. that Jesus was prophesying what would take place. Matthew 23 or 24, one of those areas. It's within that uh, same basic time as this generation shall not pass away till all these things take place. 
No, this is not, uh, he, okay, um, so Jesus had not ascended in Matthew 23 and 24. He's just telling them what's going to take place. And he's saying things like, uh, therefore you must always be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's, he's saying immediately after tribulation of those days. In fact, here, um, Matthew 24, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. All right? So there's a, a, a portion of passage, actually, that goes into not only what that Jesus is ascended, you know, he's foretelling that this is, this is what's happening, but he's also drawing in from the nations in his ascension, because this is, uh, and it comes right on the heels of immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the sign, the sign uh, in heaven, the sign of the son of man. Um, so the question becomes, okay, so premillennialists will say, okay, all these terrible things are happening. Now he's coming back. Even amillennialists would say that to a great degree. All these terrible things are happening, then he returns. What a postmillennialist would typically say is, he's talking about Jerusalem, 70 AD, and this idea that then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, now they've got to do something with that. And I see that as very easily understood as Daniel, Daniel's prophecy of the ascension. It is a sign. Okay, it says... Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Um, it's, it's not like there's, he's even saying, then you're going to see me. It's still a sign. Now the question is, is this just a sign that he's the one doing the judging? Or is it a sign that he's in, at the right hand of the sign of the Son of God, that he's been positioned in heaven? And he's still doing the judging in, in, in both cases. But uh, some, some will maybe disconnect it from Daniel and I, I just don't know why it makes sense to me to have it connected. But we could talk more on that. Um, any other thoughts? <laughs>